1 Corinthians 3, page 1129. So we're continuing our study through 1 Corinthians. I attended a pastor's conference, uh, and it was, it's a well-attended well pastor's conference. There are thousands of pastors and elders and seminarians who go to this thing. In fact, it's so large that uh, they, they've had to hold this pastor's conference in the um, college arena uh, of a college basketball team. So it's in this big college basketball arena. And as part of the promotional material to get the word out about this conference, they took this uh, promotional photo, and the photo is taken on the basketball court of the arena, and the different speakers who were speaking at the arena were lined up, and they were all holding basketball jerseys. And on each jersey was a number, you know, like someone on a team, and then it had the last name of the person, and, and they're all sort of lined up in, in this photo. And I, I looked at that photo, and it totally rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, like you know, like these are the superstars that we're all going to see. You know, and, and it, I think it was just they're trying to be clever. It's like, you know, hey, come to this event. Here's the team. But, but it just struck me like, you know, you know these are the super kind of uh, elite preachers who, who are here to, and you can come see them in the arena. And I, and I was like, wow, it just it bothered me, especially when you kind of overlay sports on top of it. Because, you know, we have this huge idolatry of sports in American culture. And, and we put sports heroes up on pedestals, and we make so much of sports heroes. And so, so to kind of take the sports thing that happens here and to overlay that on top of the preaching thing, it just didn't sit well with me. I talked to some other people, I'm like, does that bother you? And other people are like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of hmm, not so great. But uh, I, I was thinking about that photo again this last week as I was preparing to preach on 1 Corinthians 3, and I've actually had a change of heart. I've actually come to see it a little bit differently. Because as I thought about it more, I realized, you know, it, it's just one of those marketing things that backfired. I mean, I mean sometimes, you know, you, you try to do something clever and it just comes out wrong. We've all had that experience. And I know some of these pastors who spoke there personally. And I know they are not egotistical, superstar, megalomaniac people. It's just, you know, it's just what they were doing to try to pitch this thing. But, but, but here's where the flip-flop happened for me. I started to think about the photo again. I thought, you know, that photo, there's a lot of truth in that. Because isn't it the case that we, that we put people on pedestals? That even though they're humble people, in our minds, we turn all kinds of people in our culture into superstars, even inside the church? You know, we, we, you know, mega pastors of mega churches who write mega books and blogs and articles and speakers at conferences, and there's something that we, that we do even to humble, unassuming people to kind of turn them into something larger than life. We, we put them on a pedestal. It even happens in the church. And it seems to me there's something akin to that happening here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul has been writing to the Corinthians. He's kind of been warming up here, and now he's ready to make his big <laughs> objection to the way the Corinthians were acting. Because the Corinthians had put him on a pedestal. Well, some of them. And some of the other Corinthian Christians had put another teacher on the pedestal. And there was a fight breaking out in the church between these two groups. 
you, you, you know, like, like a, a Red Sox guy and a guy with a Yankees tattoo next to each other on a plane, you know, and they're, they're suddenly, you know, and I like Paul, I like Apollos. And Paul calls him on it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I give you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready, for you're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? So here is Paul finally taking the gloves off with the Corinthians. He's been kind of dancing around it, and now he says, okay, look, I'm just going to hit this topic head on. You guys are acting like spiritual babies. That's what he says. You guys are acting like infants in Christ. You know, when I first started the church, you acted like spiritual babies because, well, you were spiritual babies, and so I treated you. You were new Christians. It was understandable. But now he says it's many years later, and you're still acting like spiritual babies. Ah, and now he's frustrated. He says, you're still worldly. And of course, when he says that word worldly, he's, he's now sort of drawing upon all of the things he's been talking about in chapter 2. If you've been with us the last couple Sundays, we studied chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we saw that Paul was, was building this contrast between worldly wisdom and gospel or cross wisdom. That, that the wisdom of the world says, you know, promote yourself, stick up for yourself, advance yourself, get it, grab it, it's yours, climb the ladder. Uh, and, and the wisdom of the cross says, no, be humble, be a servant, give up your life for the good of others, to build up others. It's a very different kind of wisdom. And the world thinks that the gospel wisdom is foolishness. And, and Paul says, no, no, gospel wisdom is life. The world's wisdom is going to be destroyed. That's foolishness. So here's Paul then taking that whole thing he's been building and laying out, and he now dumps it into chapter 3, and he's essentially saying that the way they are fighting with each other in the church shows that they're still operating under worldly wisdom. They're still immature Christians who think it's all about them as opposed to being humble and sacrificial and loving. So he he nails them on that. And how does it show itself in their church? Well, verse 3, you're still worldly. Since there's quarreling and jealousy among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? It was a church where there was fighting and bickering. And, you know, whenever we find ourselves in a pattern of fighting and bickering and quarreling, it's a pretty good indication that we're acting in a worldly way, that there's something going on in us that's not maturing in Christ. But what is it, and here's where we get to the point, what is it that they were bickering over? Verse 4, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? So there was Paul. He started the church. He was there for a year and a half. He left. And then later on, he sent Apollos. Apollos came in, and he picked up the work and kept pastoring the church. But it appears that the people in Corinth kind of latched on to these. And some people, you know, were like, I miss Paul. I wish Paul was back here. You know, Apollos, he's okay, but man, Paul's, I I understood Paul, and I I liked Paul. And other people in the church are going, Paul? 
he was so, you know, plain and boring and, you know, jeez, Apollos came and I finally, you know, really understand the Bible. I mean, Apollos is so much more clever and slick and articulate and I really, Apollos helps me. How could you like Paul? Paul was irritating. What do you mean Paul was irritating? You know, and, and then this, like I said, it's the Red Sox guy and the Yankee guy on the plane next to each other. They're having this argument. And there's probably something else going on here too. Um, but we know historically that one of the dynamics taking place in cities like Corinth and in sort of major metropolitan areas in the Roman Empire was that they became places where traveling, get this, traveling philosophers would come and traveling orators and they would come and try to build a following in these cities. And they would stand and spin their philosophy and try to outdo one another with the, the cleverness of their insights and logic and the, you know, spinning their rhetoric to, to bewitch the crowds and hold them in rapt attention, you know, all this oratorical kind of stuff. And, and, and people would track these, these orators in town and these sophists and philosophers, and oftentimes even uh, wealthy families or up-and-coming families would become patrons of certain philosophers and attach themselves to them. So, so it became this sort of weird social climbing kind of thing where, where you would back a certain philosopher and orator and as a way of gaining prestige and renown in the town, which was big in Corinthians. And I was thinking, you know, people do this all the time. I mean, you, just, you figure out if there's someone in the room who's important. And then everyone's kind of trying to gravitate toward the person who's important. Uh, it happens, you know, those of you who are in junior high, high school, right? You know who the cool kids are. I could ask my kids anytime, who are the cool kids? And they're like, oh, it's this one, that one, that one. They know, they know what the, the food chain is in school. And there's always a queen bee, and she's always got the other bees buzzing around her. And you know, it's just how, it's how it works. We, we, we naturally do this sort of thing. So the Corinthians were taking that kind of junk, that worldly stuff that we do, and they were mapping it onto the church in some way, saying, you know, putting Paul on a pedestal or putting Apollos on a pedestal and clinging to them as, as a way of sort of gaining standing with one another and, and climbing up in the social stratification. And we do the same things today in the church, I, I think. You know, we don't, we don't have of traveling philosophers and orators, but we have something else in American society, which you might argue is even more powerful. We have celebrity culture. America has celebrities. And in some ways, it's even more powerful because if somebody is a celebrity in American culture, they're put front and center on TV, movies, YouTube, iTunes, whatever it is, and, and literally millions of Americans focus their attention on one person. I mean, it's kind of like the system in Corinth except on steroids. It's even huger, right? It's the American Idol phenomena. You know, it's a reality TV, and we're all, like, tuned into this, you know? You know, these, these guys who hunt ducks, and it's like, who are they? And all of a sudden, we're like, wow! You know, and you could take anybody who's quirky or interesting or weird or talented or not talented, and if, if you put the camera on them, they are a celebrity, whether they have earned it or not. And so we have rock stars and sports stars and movie stars and TV stars and pundits, and, and, and I'm thinking that, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think that cultural phenomenon, which is very real and powerful, gets mapped onto the church too. 
And, and we start to make celebrity pastors and celebrity conference speakers and celebrity you know, writers and bloggers, even inside the Christian church. And there's even a marketing kind of thing that, that unwittingly feeds into that and, and promotes it. And it even happens in local churches. I mean, haven't you ever been in a local church where, where the pastor or the priest or whoever was kind of like on a different level? And they, they're a little bit sacrosanct and they're a little bit sort of above. And it was just kind of, everyone had that feeling and, um, you know, that happens. It happens in cults. I mean, that's one of the, the things that, that cults do is, is typically there's somebody who actually plays that role. It's sort of an extreme version of that. You know, one of the marks of a cult is that there's usually a leader who is deemed infallible. And, and, and you can't question that leader. And that leader is the one who tells you what God says or what the Bible says. So there's an authoritarianism that goes along with kind of a personality cult. It's a, a, a char- common characteristics of most cults that are out there. And, and so the, it just happens in churches, which of course raises the question, could that happen at South Shore Baptist Church? I like Jeremy. I like Seth. Are you kidding? Jeremy and Seth are old. I like Godwin. <laughs> Godwin's no spring chicken. He just had a baby. I like Pete. He's one of us. You know, like we, you attach yourself to certain people. I like this Sunday school teacher or that elder. That elder, you know, that elder is out to lunch. This is the one who I can relate to, right? And, and we do this in the church, and we start latching on to people, putting people on pedestals, and, and it can really happen. And I just think, you know, it's something we have to guard against in this church. I mean, this is super awkward to talk about, isn't it? So can we just have three minutes of awkwardness together? I'd like to share some awkwardness with you. I think this could happen with me in this church. Because here's the facts. I've, I've been pastoring in this church now for 17 years. Like, and it's been pretty darn good. Like, you know, it's, overall, we've had a really good relationship. We've had our moments, of course. Uh, but, but, you know, I love you. And you love me, generally. You know, I, I, <laughs> I feel it. We love each other. I, I hope I retire in this church, if it's God's will. I mean, the, what a blessing. I realize that God is doing, has done something special here. I know other pastors who are great gifted pastors who are faithful and they've had really rocky experiences in churches. It, it, it's, you know, so this is, this is God doing something special in our church. And as long as He's doing it and calling me here, you know, I'll be here. It just, I'm just here on my, His following His orders. So it's a great relationship. You know, there's, in 17 years, there's so much trust that we can build. There's so much care that we can develop. We have a history together. But there's a danger. There's many dangers. But one of the dangers is... That, that we can cross that line from honoring, respecting, appreciating, loving that's appropriate into a kind of exalting someone. You, you know, you, you, know you, you could start treating me as infallible or start treating me as, you know, totally in charge. And, you know, let's be honest, it's not hypothetical. I've, I've been, people say to my face in the presence of others, well, what does he say? He's the boss. Or they say things like, well, you know, well, there's the head honcho. Let's just see what he wants to do. And just to be really clear, 
I'm not the boss of South Shore Baptist Church. Jesus Christ is the head of our church, right? We've got to have that straight in our heads. And, and I, you know, again, I know people are respectful and they're nice, but it's, I just think we're crossing into really dangerous territory when we go there. You know, have, 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 has that happened in our church? Have you ever walked into South Shore Baptist Church on a Sunday morning and someone told you I wasn't preaching and you left and went and had coffee instead? Have you ever uh, tried to get something done in the church and you wanted, you wanted to do something, you had some brilliant idea, and, and you tried to go through all the appropriate channels and it got blocked and people were like, eh, I don't know, and then you said, well, I'll just go talk to Jeremy, because that's how it really gets done. Or have you ever, uh, you know, had someone come visit you or do some counseling with you or something or, or do a wedding or something like that and it was one of the other pastors and one of the elders and somewhere in your heart you felt a little bit gypped because it wasn't Jeremy, right? It, like I said, this is awkward, right? But that's, that's what I'm saying. That's where that, that stuff has to be examined and pulled out so that we realize we can easily do this, even in our church. And some of you are thinking, dude, I've never thought any of those things. You know? <laughs> Praise God for you. <laughs> so here's what Paul wants to help us with. This is a natural tendency. I have the same tendency. I put people on pedestals. I, I put speakers on pedestals. We all do this. So here's what Paul wants to do. He wants to give us another lens for thinking about leadership in the local church. He wants to give us another lens for thinking about Christian leaders. And, and so he actually is going to give us two lenses, like glasses. You're going to have two lenses, two metaphors that are going to help us. The first metaphor is in verses 5 through 9. The second metaphor is in verses 10 through 17 of this chapter. So here's the first metaphor. He's like, I'm going to tell you a different way to think about me and Apollos. I'm going to tell you a different way to think about Christian leaders. Here's the first one. Number one, Apostles and Christian leaders are just hired farm hands. They're just hired farm hands. Look at verses 5 to 9. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. They're not divided. They have one purpose. And each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. So there's the first one. Hired farmhands. Paul says, I planted. I started the church. Then I left. Another hired farmhand came along and he watered it. And so there have been different farm workers that have been there, but God is the one making the whole thing grow. And, and isn't that true? I mean, think about your own spiritual journey in Christ. Think about your own autobiography of how you've gotten to where you are today as a Christian. Can't you, in fact, look back on it and see there have been a number of players who've come into your life, a number of workers who've each done a little bit of the journey for you, right? There was maybe like... Who knows? I don't know. Your grandma or your mom or your dad, and they've told you about Christ. And there was that vacation Bible school 
teacher who made a really big impact on you or your third grade Sunday school teacher who really helped you to think more about Christ. And, and then there was the person who led you to faith in Christ. And then there was the person in college who sat and did a Bible study with you and helped you kind of get the basics of Christianity sorted out. And then there was that one pastor who really had a preaching ministry that shaped and impacted you. And then there's that other person who got you interested in foreign missions. You know, but you look back on your journey and you realize there have been all these points where different workers have been assigned to come into your life to do a certain thing. And, and some of those workers have had a tremendous impact on you. And the tempting thing is to look at the worker. And then Paul's like, no, 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 no. They're just the gardeners. They're just hired farm hands. They're just migrant workers who are sent by God from one task to the next task. Don't, don't put them on a pedestal. If you're going to put anyone on a pedestal, who deserves to be there? Well, God. Because Verse 6, Paul planted, Apollos watered, God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So Paul wants us to stand not in awe of gifted teachers and preachers, but to stand in awe of God who makes it grow. Have you ever experienced spiritual growth in your life? I hope that's a yes. Are you experiencing spiritual growth right now in your life where you're, you're saying no to worldliness more and more and selfishness and pride and, and self-servingness and you're saying more and more to humility and death to yourself and death to sin, to serve others and love others? If you, if you experience that growth, anytime you're experiencing that growth, do you realize that in that moment you are actually experiencing power of God in your life. That God, literally God is making you grow. That's an awesome thought. And so, so don't, don't get it fuzzy by, by focusing on the, the channel through which that growth may be coming. Realize that God is making you grow. If you've been here for a, a couple months and and my preaching or the growth group you joined or the Sunday school class you're in has really helped you to grow you know, just rejoice in the fact God loves you. God is actually ministering to you. The power of God is flowing into your life because people don't grow closer to Jesus naturally. It just doesn't happen. The only way we love Jesus more and become like Him more is through the power of God. And so, glory to God. He makes it grow. The workers are nothing. It's God who's doing the work. It's a beautiful thing. And each of those workers will be rewarded according to his labors. And then look how he wraps it up in verse 9. He he puts all the pieces together. For we are God's fellow workers, and you, the church, are God's field. You're the thing he's growing. Again, we, we put our attention when we put leaders on pedestals, and we think that's the thing that God is doing. No, 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 no. The thing God is doing is his church. That's what God is doing. And the leaders are just there to kind of serve. So, so everything's back in the right order. They had it out of order. They had apostles, ooh, superstars. I like this one. I like that one. And then as a result, they were trampling on the church. They were fighting and dividing. And then God, well, I don't know where God was. God is just out of the picture. And Paul says, let's flip it upside down. At the top is, wow, God, who is growing people. 
And wow, look what he's growing. The church. This is God's field. You're the garden. You're the new paradise. You're the new Eden. I, I, I think there's possibly even sort of end times language here. Like, you're the new creation. You're the new heavens and new earth that God is growing, the new paradise that God has planted and he's growing. And, and, and the people he's using are, eh, you know, the apostles, the holy apostles and prophets and those guys and pastors. Yeah, they're down here and they're just helping serve. But wow, look at what God's doing in your lives. And so Paul gets the order right. And, and this is so critical. We've got to get the leadership thing right. Because if we don't, every one of those things takes a hit. If we don't get the leadership thing right, God is robbed of his glory. If we don't have the right perspective on leadership, we trample on the church, which is the garden of God that God is growing. And if we don't get the leadership thing right, we actually do a disservice to our leaders even. Because, you know, I don't want to be put on a pedestal. Because it's not if, it's when. When I disappoint you. When I don't get a biblical interpretation 100% right. I know it's never happened, but it could. When, when I'm not 100% loving pastoral mode at every moment and I miss an obvious duh, you know, when I, I fall back into my sin nature and I act aggressively or pushy instead of lovingly and humbly, not if those things happen, when those things are going to happen, if you've got me on a 60-foot pedestal, it's going to hurt when I land. But if I'm just down in the mud and I'm a farm worker and I do that, you're like, well, that's what we expect. He's just a hired farmhand. I mean, what do you expect? And we're just kind of amazed when Jeremy gets it right, really. So like, that, like, it, it, it helps me to be just a hired farmhand and not put on some pedestal that's so high that the only person who can balance on it without falling off is our Lord Jesus. He's the only one who deserves the throne and the pedestal. And so it gives glory to God, it protects the church, and it's actually a kindness to leaders to keep all of that in order. So that's one image. Here's the other one in verses 10 to 17. So how should we view the apostles and the pastors and the leaders? View them, number one, as hired farm workers. Number two, view them as construction workers. Another just salt-of-the-earth job, like farming, like construction. Yeah, just, you know, construction workers. They're nobody big in the world. They just build stuff. And they get it done, and they go on to the next one, and they get their paycheck, and they go home. And that's who Paul says, that's who we are. Look at verses 10 to 17. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. 
So here's the new image, construction worker. Farmer, Paul says, I plant, Apollos watered, construction worker. I started the foundation, someone else has built on the foundation. We're each just doing our part. And the important thing isn't who did the building, but did they do a good job? Isn't that really all you care about if someone builds something? Did they do a good job? Right? I, I was, was down in my basement last night, um, just kind of going over this sermon and thinking it through, and I was looking around my basement, and I was just looking at the foundations, the cement foundations of my house. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, I wonder who poured the foundations of my house. Just probably some guy with a cement truck and some forms and a crew that did it. And I don't know who those people's names are. And frankly, I don't really care. What I care about is one thing. Did they do a good job? You know, is my house, get, is my foundation going to have cracks in it? Or did they do a good job at their work? That's all I care about. And if they poured a good foundation, I don't care who that person was. I don't put them on a pedestal. And so Paul says, well, that's all we were doing in the church. We're just the construction workers. We're just doing the manual labor of pouring the foundation. So Paul, he says, Paul says, look, I did a good job. I laid the foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But the key is, how are you building? What are you using as your foundation? Here's how we should build, verse 11. No one can lay any foundation other than the one that was already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gold and the costly stones and the silver. Jesus Christ is the foundation. Brothers and sisters, there's no other foundation on which to build your life now or in eternity. If you build your life on anything other than Jesus, when the judgment day comes, you will be swept away. There's only one rock that can withstand the storm that is coming upon this world, and it's Jesus. And if you're not built on Jesus, if your confidence is not in His death and resurrection, you'll be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the the winds came down, and the floods came up, and that foundation was washed away. No other philosopher, no other religious leader can save you. Only Christ can do that. Why? Because He's the only one who bled for you. The only one who bore our sins on the cross. The only one who rose again. My hope has to be in Christ alone. You know, that word alone is the key word. You know, that song we just sang is not just in Christ. It's in Christ alone. Think about that word alone. It makes all the difference. Because Jesus is the only foundation. He's the only Savior. He's the only one who dealt with my sin and rose again and forgave me and can reconcile me to my Creator is God's own Son. And Paul says, that's the foundation I laid. It's a good foundation. Now you get all kinds of other people building on it. Great, but this is what matters. Not who they are or how great you think they are. Are they doing a good job? What are they building with? Is it gold, silver? What's the other one he says? Costly stones? Is, is it the gospel? Are they, are they building the ministry on the Word of God? Are, are they building you up based on the gospel? Are they trying to point you toward Jesus to be more like Jesus? Or is it hay and wood and straw? Is it worldly ideas and slick, slickness and cleverness? You know, what is it that's being used to build people? What, what is the ministry based on? Is it the gospel and God's Word or is it something else? And Paul says, you know, when that day comes, when the fire comes, the only thing that will stand is gold, silver, and costly stones. The other stuff will be burned up. 
kind of remind, I don't know why I was reading this, but I was, I was thinking about the nursery tale of the big bad wolf and the three little pigs. You know, and one builds the house of straw, and one builds a house out of wood, and one builds the brick house, and then the big bad wolf comes, and he huffs and puffs, and he blows the first two houses down, and the, the other little pigs run to the stone house, and he can't get the stone house. Well, well that's, it's happening. There, there is uh, uh, a day coming when the big bad wolf will blow, and he's going to blow this world down. And if it's not built on Christ and out of Christ, anything that's not built in Christ will not stand. And you may escape, but you'll escape as one who got his house blown down, kind of a thing. So, so there's a real emphasis here, again, on Christ. It's Jesus the foundation. Jesus is the one that matters, not who's doing the work, but are they building it on Christ and out of the gospel and out of God's word? That's where the focus should be. Um, because that day is coming. You, you know, I, you just wonder what that day is going to be like when we're standing before Him and we see these leaders. You know, I, I imagine standing before God being tested on that day as some mega pastor with his mega church. And then there's some pastor who ministered in northern Maine that you'd never heard about for 35 years in a little paper mill town that eventually dwindled because all the kids left because there's no one to work in the paper mills because they shut down. You know, one of those kind of scenarios. And he just was faithfully there. And you think, on that judgment day, what will be the outcome? And the answer is, I don't know. It all depends on how they built. You know, you can't tell looking at it. You can't say, oh, the, the person who had a huge church, that was good ministry. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it will turn out to be a huge palace of gold. Praise God. Or maybe it'll turn out to be a lot of glitz and personality and a lot of giftedness, but not a lot of depth, not a lot of people really growing in Christ. Maybe there'll be a lot of wood and hay that gets burned up. I mean, you just don't know. But you have to assess it that way. And maybe the guy in Maine, maybe he's faithful and true. And yeah, it's just a little church in the backwoods of Maine, but wow, what a church. Or maybe it'll be, you know, like this church that is small and because it's really sick, because there's been a lot of dysfunction, because Christ hasn't been central, because the gospel wasn't preached. I don't know. But my point is, you can't look at it through worldly lenses and make worldly assessments of ministries the way that we tend to assess other things. You have to ask, what's being built there? And because the answer to that is a spiritual question, it's not always easy to give a quick answer. But the Lord will test it on that day. But in the meantime, take care what you're building, because it will be judged and assessed. You know, if you are a pastor here today, I guess that's just me and Seth. If you are an elder, if you are a growth group leader here today, if you are a Sunday school teacher or, or someone running a, in the men's ministry or working in a women's ministry, or, or you have some ministry to people, you know, be careful how you build. Be careful how you build. You know, be careful what you do because this is God's building and your work will be assessed. In fact, look at verses 16 to 17. Don't you know that you're the God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So you go from the garden image, you're the garden, you're the new creation, you're the new thing that God has created, to, all right, you're also the temple of God. Think about that. You're the temple of God. Because God's Spirit is in you. The church is the temple of God that's under construction. 
right now. You know, in the Old Testament, there are all these prophecies about the restoration of the temple. It's happening. But it's not a building in Jerusalem. That's the surprise. You know, even if they got rid of the Dome of the Rock and they built a new building in Jerusalem, according to biblical specifications, it wouldn't be the temple. It would just be a replica. You're the temple. This is where the Spirit of God is. It's people. It's living stones. That's the New Testament teaching. Like, whoa, wow. The church is the temple of the living God on earth. A living, moving temple that's growing and spreading and loving and reaching people. It's so incredible. And so we need to treat the church with awe. So there it is again. God is the foundation. God is the right materials. The church is the temple. And the leaders in the church, we're just the construction workers. We're just doing our part. Make sure you build with quality. You are the temple of the living God. It's an amazing thing. So, what do we do with all this? Verses 18 to 21 wraps it up. Verse 18, don't deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. Will we be fools for Christ or will we be wise by the standards of this age? Will we base our life on climbing the ladder, achieving, being put on pedestals, putting on pedestals, always trying to become something in this world? That's worldly wisdom. Or will we follow the way of the cross which is willing to be humble, willing to take the second place, willing to serve others, willing to sacrifice, to put our own needs second, and and to suffer so that others might grow and others might be built up. You know, how how is it that we're going to live our lives? And Paul says, don't be worldly. Stop it, you know? Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, God catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. He he knows that that's foolish. It's not going to get you anywhere. So then, verse 21, no more boasting about men. I love that. It's kind of like, stop it. (laughs) Just stop it. Stop putting people on pedestals. Just Don't do that anymore. Time to grow up for all of us. No more boasting about men. And then verses 21 to 23 are just amazing. It's like at this point, Paul goes into orbit. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. He's like... Why are you fighting over the crumbs of the world and over the little status symbols of the world? Don't you know that if you have Jesus Christ, you have everything? That it's all yours? You know? I mean, maybe not just yet. You can't just go out and take any car in the lot you want. But you know what I'm saying is it's all yours. It's all going to be yours. It, and in Christ, it already is yours. The, the new creation, the heavens and the earth, God has a whole universe that he's prepared for the saints. It's all yours. You know, someday it's all going to come to fruition. Someday the garden is going to be done. Someday the temple is going to be finished and everything will be complete and we'll stand in the new creation and we'll see everything God has for us that's going to blow our minds and we're going to see Jesus himself 
and we're going to belong to Jesus, and we'll see the Father God, our Creator Himself, and we'll see that we belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God, and it's all ours, and Christ is ours. And do you think on that day it's going to matter how many followers you had on Twitter? Will it matter how many Facebook friends you had? Will you really care on that day what your net worth was or how much you made? Will it matter to you what your title was in the organization, whether you made it to varsity or you were stuck on JV for another year? Will it matter if you're a starter or not a starter? Will, will it matter, you know, whether the world thought you were cool or whether the world thought you were a dork? I mean, what will it matter? It won't. Will it matter for pastors how many people we had in our church or didn't have in our church or whether we spoke at conferences or didn't speak at conferences? Or Will any of that matter? on that day when we have it all, plus Christ, plus God, and we're theirs, I just don't think it'll matter. And so Paul's saying, so don't, don't worry about it. Just be a fool. You're getting it all anyway. You can afford to be fools for Jesus. You can totally afford it. You know, don't have to worry about it. You're not, you're not taking any hit if you live as a fool for Jesus. If you decide to take the low road of humility if you decide to go be a missionary someplace and, you know, waste your career, it's not a waste. It's, it's not a fool to choose to, to, to not make as much money to serve the Lord. It, it's not a fool to embrace poverty for Christ. It, it's, it's not foolish to take the low road and serve and to be humble and to say, you know, I'm sorry and I'm here to serve you. That's, that's not foolish because you're getting everything anyway. So what do you got to lose? Nothing. So we're free. We're free to serve the way Christ did, who laid aside His glory and came and humbled Himself to the cross to save us, knowing that the Father would give Him everything, would give Him the name above every name. We're free to serve. Because, as it says in chapter 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would grant to each of us the mind of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us, help me grow up from being a baby, self-focused, selfish Christian to being a grown-up Christian who really believes that all is mine in Christ. Lord, help me to let go of boasting and to let go of bragging, help us to let go of ladder climbing and status and trying to keep up an, an image, Lord, and help us to embrace Christ and to serve Him, whatever that means. Help us to let go of our lives for Your sake. Oh, Lord, I pray that You would keep Christ at the head of South Shore Baptist Church. Lord, help us not to fall into the errors that the Corinthians fell into. Help us not to uh, boast in people, whether in the church or outside of the church. Lord, we pray that our only boast would be in You that our only boast would be in Christ. And Lord, keep us hopeful and focused on the world that is coming to us and help us to live our lives with reckless abandon for the gospel here, whatever that means. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.